Have you noticed that politicians struggle to enact the things they run on? That regardless of who wins elections, lawmakers find they cannot pass whatever legislation they like. They find themselves bound by what is popular or at least their sense of it. They can only act within a narrow set of ideas, and that range is called the Overton Window. And on the Overton Window podcast, we look at issues around the country and talk to the people who change what is politically possible. Now go back to 2019, and there would have been no desire for people or lawmakers to investigate state emergency powers. And then governors started pushing the limits with extraordinary COVID rules that they imposed at their own discretion and that would last as long as they said so. And this led to a lot of people to ask, wait, can they do that? Why do we have these emergency powers? And can we change any of this? And today we have Mike Van Beek, my colleague here at the Mackinac Center, who did a deep dive on the history of Michigan's emergency laws. And Daniel Dew, the legal policy director at the Pacific Legal Foundation, which has challenged some state emergency powers in courts and worked with a number of states to put guardrails around their emergency laws. Mike and Daniel, welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks, James. Why did emergency or why did governors get their emergency authorities? I can I can kick off with that. <laughs> yeah. So originally governors had these emergency authorities because legislatures weren't convened all the time and things would pop up where government needed to act quickly to save life or property. And so typically these emergency powers allowed uh, governors to move money and, and people around but they've been they've been worded extremely broad. So, for example, in the state of Arizona and in California, it says that when the governor declares an emergency, the governor will have the police powers of the state, meaning that that anything the state can do, all of that power is vested into the governor for that period of time. Now, until 2020, typically these things were used for natural disasters. You know, a governor would declare an emergency for a tornado or a hurricane or flooding or, or whatever the natural uh, disaster may be. And it's something that that had a, a finite amount of time where where the governor need to, needed to move people and, and money around. It was never designed to be a, a long term thing. Yeah, and I'll, I'll just add to that. Um, there's a key distinction here between uh, a, a pandemic response, like we saw with COVID-19, and uh, response to a natural disaster. And that is, uh, with a natural disaster, uh, the damage has already occurred. And a lot of times what governors were, would do is they would declare an emergency in order to uh, help repair the, the damage done. So and in, in many cases, these were just formalities, actually. A, a declaration of an emergency was a formality so that the state could use its resources to help a local community recover from some sort of natural disaster that had already occurred. So that's very different from the approach that was taken with COVID-19, which is where governors declared emergencies and attempted to uh, proactively uh, limit uh, potential damage that could be done. So that's a very different uh, sort of perspective and, and angle that uh, governors took in this case. So what was the difference between how governors exercised their emergency authorities in the past versus what they did um, during this pandemic? Well, I think I think that one of the, the big differences is just the length of time, right? It's uh, mm -hmm. going on two years or we're past two years in now. 
And uh, many states are still under a declaration of emergency. And then the other is just the broad scope of how many people it impacted. Um, during 2020, 316 million people at some point were under stay-at-home orders, meaning the government had told them, one person, the governor had told them, that unless they had a government-approved purpose, uh, purpose, they should stay in their homes. And that's just something that that uh, is unthinkable in, in the past. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm kind of curious about this because if this is powers that no one had exercised before, I think a lot of people asked, can they do that? And uh, from your perspective on, on, on fighting these are around the country, can they do that? What? Uh... Well, so if you look at some of the statutes, it seems that some of them can. Some emergency power statutes didn't have time limits. Um, like I said, they were incredibly broad, investing the entire police power in the state. Now, while the statute allows them to do that, we think that there's a real constitutional problem with that. So one of the things that that PLF really works on is the separation of powers, making sure that each branch of government performs its, its proper duty. And even if a branch of government wants to delegate that authority to another branch, it can't do so because that's what the Constitution uh, requires. And so we've argued that, that um, the, the legislature giving this broad grant of authority without any kind of, of guardrails to the governor is really a violation of the separation of powers. So that's one way that, that we've been fighting this. I'd add too, um, to bring the Overton window into this, um, before, uh, before 2020, and even in the early stages of the pandemic, most people, politicians and experts would have said that the government cannot do uh, these kinds of broad scale lockdowns and stay at home orders. In fact, uh, when uh, China had done some of these things in February, uh, late January and February, um, there were politicians and uh, public health experts who said quite confidently that those things could not be done in the United States because it was a violation of our Western values and had no legal precedent. Uh, but then within a month. And sometimes those authorities saying it with with a slight tinge of regret. <laughs> Maybe. But there but within a month. Uh, most states had taken those types of actions that uh, previously most people thought were outside of the Overton window. And I think uh, the, the you know, COVID-19 pandemic response uh, revealed actually how large that the Overton window was on these kinds of actions. And uh, a lot of people misunderstood it and, and didn't, uh, didn't uh, understand that uh, the window was a lot larger than what they had thought. Mm -hmm. So Daniel, uh, as part of a public interest law firm, you've challenged some of these things. You have an argument that these things should be unconstitutional for, uh, for non-delegation reasons, separation of power reasons. Um, how did courts respond? Yeah, so courts responded slowly. So that was the first <laughs> thing that, that we noticed is that initially the courts did not want to get involved. This is an emergency and we're going to leave this to the to the political branches, even though when they say political branches, it only meant one person in, in most instances. But then as the pan pandemic went on and these things didn't end, that's when the courts really started to looking, started looking at these things 
more seriously. One of the things that we were really uh, involved in, though, was the the state of Kentucky. So Kentucky, mm-hmm. um, we worked with uh, the Pegasus Institute there and their legislature, and they passed great reforms, um, putting a time limit on on the governor's emergency orders, um, making sure that the governor couldn't just re-up emergency orders after they expired, really making sure that the legislature plays its proper role in setting policy for the state. But immediately uh, after his veto was overridden, the governor sued the legislature to stop the law from going into effect, which procedurally is just a mess, but uh, one court went along with it. Uh, we we filed a, a suit on behalf of um, business owners in another jurisdiction. We met up at the Kentucky Supreme Court, and the Kentucky Supreme Court unanimously held that that it was within the purview of the legislature to set limits on the governor's emergency powers. Even though that same um, that same Supreme Court the year previous, before the reforms went into effect, did not buy into the the separation of powers uh, argument and said that this is what the Kentucky statute allows. So courts did evolve in their in their views. So I, I want to dwell on that because it just seems um, crazy to me about the normal functioning of government, which is in Kentucky, the governor is, uh, had some emergency authorities. The legislature was unhappy that it didn't have guardrails. You said, all right, here's what we we're going to do. We're going to pass a law um, to put some guardrails on this. And the governor sued them to say, no, you can't pass that law. Like, or at least that law is ineffective uh, 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 for me. And you had to fight in the courts to say, no, the legislature gets to pass laws. Yeah. It was, is that what happened? That, that's exactly what happened. And and it was unbelievable. The, the governor's argument was basically that that emergency powers are inherent in the office and you know there was there was no limiting principle and this is and this is why this this issue even though it's not it may not be receiving the attention that it deserves now is so important because it, the alternative is that one person gets to declare an emergency on whatever they want no one has the ability to fight against that and because of that they can implement anything that government can do. So, you know, you can declare an emergency on uh, gun violence, homelessness, the opioid epidemic, climate change, whatever you want. And if that logic holds true, then then the governor can just do whatever he or she wants. Mm-hmm. Uh, so are, are you confident that the courts are going to to, to say, yes, there are limits on on these uh, on the governor's abilities to declare emergencies and do whatever they want. I am. I think that that uh, courts are recognizing that this has been a long time and that they have to step in and and fulfill their their constitutional duties. But I think that's why it's important that the work that um, groups like PLF and Mackinac are doing to work with legislatures to, to be specifically clear what uh, a governor or even a public health official can or can't do is so important. Mm-hmm. Now, Michael, you mentioned in the past that governors didn't use their powers to do uh, to have broad sweeping commands over people's lives in the past. Uh, what have the, these emergency powers been used in uh, o- over time? 
Well, uh, you know, previously they've uh, largely been used in response to natural disasters. Um, and there was a, uh, a movement uh, in, the, in the 70s uh, to get uh, new emergency powers in statute that dealt with these kinds of situations. And, and like I said, a lot of them were just a formality so that governors could declare an emergency and then release the resources of the state in order to help a local community deal with the fallout from some sort of natural disaster from a hurricane or tornado or uh, flooding or those sorts of things. Um, and that was, you know, largely uh, what the experience was with emergency uh, emergency powers. You know, in Michigan, the um, the law that the gov- that Governor Whitmer used to uh, order her pandemic uh, measures hadn't been used in 50 years. Uh, it, it, it just sat on the books uh, doing nothing. Um, and it was uh, actually something that was passed by the legislature in 1945 in response to uh, local rioting in Detroit. And it was largely uh, uh, meant to allow the state police to um, have clear jurisdiction over um, their ability to deal with urban, urban riots or some sort of uh, localized civil unrest. Um, but because the language was so broad, as, as Daniels pointed out, this is a case in many of these statutes, the language was so incredibly broad that it, it allowed the governor to basically do whatever, whatever she wanted um, as long as she deemed it necessary. Uh, and, that's, and that's basically the extent of the guardrails uh, on that law. So, um, you know, I, I think the experience with COVID-19 is that uh, these statutes that have such broad language um, can be used and will be used by governors uh, to do extraordinary measures that hadn't, you know, that, that were completely unprecedented and hadn't been done before. Mm-hmm. It doesn't sound like either of you are arguing that governors should not have emergency authorities. What's your ideal policy? So I, I can start with that. I think I think you're absolutely right. I think that there is there are times when the government needs to act quickly to to uh, to save life or property. Ideally, you have a short period of time um, under which they can issue emergency orders. Um, after that time runs out, whether it be uh, 21 days, 30 days, 45 days, whatever it may be, in order for that order to continue, it has to be approved by the legislature. Making sure that the legislature is involved um, in, in setting policy, because at some point, something's no longer an emergency, right? It's a chronic problem that should be dealt with by the legislature. I think it's important that courts are sent the signal that this is something that they can't punt on. So ensuring that that uh, that these kind of challenges to emergency orders get expedited judicial review, making sure that that they are subject to, to strict scrutiny or in other words, making sure that uh, requiring courts to evaluate these orders to make sure that there is a compelling public health or safety issue and that that these orders are narrowly tailored to just deal with with those problems. Um, those are the types of, of solutions that I think are important that states should be looking at to make sure that each branch of government performs its proper duty. How's it going then in trying to put guardrails around uh, around the emergency laws around the country? Yeah, so no state has has done it perfectly, but there has been movement in a lot of of different states. Who states have uh, state legislatures have have stepped up 
Um, you know, you've got states like uh, Kentucky, as I mentioned, Ohio, Utah, Idaho, um, uh, Montana, recently North Carolina, uh, and Virginia. There's a, there's a law that's with the governor right now uh, that would limit emergency powers. So, you know, state legislatures have have stepped up and, and taken this seriously. I think the unfortunate reality is that COVID became so politicized that that instead of looking at this as a good government issue and a separation of powers issue, it becomes a referendum on their governor. And a lot of people who typically would, uh, you know, would be good small government, you know, principled people are looking at it from the standpoint of, well, I like what my governor did during COVID. And so, so we don't, we don't need emergency powers. And, and to them, I would just point out that the separation of powers is really what protects us. Um, you know, the bill of rights gets, gets all the attention, but you know, in Russia, their, their constitution protects the freedom of expression. That's one of the provisions of their constitution. We see how well that's working out for the people of Russia right now, because there is no Bill of Rights. There are no guarantees of rights unless you have a separation of powers. Now, Mike, where do you think the Overton window is on this issue? What is acceptable and what is not acceptable? Yeah, so it's it's interesting because, uh, you know, I, I think it's shifted dramatically within the last couple of years. So as I mentioned uh, you know, it, it it was much larger than what most politicians thought it was. So it was not um, considered possible politically to do things like broad scale lockdowns and stay at home orders that lasted for months and to keep schools closed and make kids wear masks and all these sorts of things were pre pre pandemic uh, early 2020. These things were not considered part of the Overton window. And then all of a sudden they were. Um, and a lot of the reaction was, you know, wait a minute, I didn't think that was possible. Um, and now what we're getting is, is kind of a, a retraction and a clarification about what is inside the Overton window, what what types of uh, actions are politically possible during uh, pandemic emergencies. And now I think um, it's it's moving more in, in a direction of uh, limiting the government's ability to do some of some of these uh, types of things um, and doing it, you know, maybe through statute, but also um you know, uh, I, I think there's a good case you can make that public opinion has changed on this because uh, during the course of this pandemic, you know, we've had multiple waves and um, the waves, subsequent waves have been uh, just as serious of a threat as previous ones. And governors have not taken unilateral action. You know, in Michigan, uh, the, the worst wave we, we've had during this pandemic uh, was from September 20. 21 until March of this year. That's when uh, the hospitals were uh, fuller than they ever have been. That's when the case rates were higher than they ever been. More people died during that period. And Governor Whitmer did absolutely nothing in response to that. So I think that that is a case where um, she's recognized that the Overton window has changed. And uh, now it is not politically possible, or at least in her estimation, to, um, or maybe just not politically wise, to uh, take the kinds of actions that she took last spring or in the spring of 2020. Mm -hmm. um, Daniel, I'm, I'm kind of curious then. Uh, so Mike said that the Overton window is pretty wide open on this one and you're trying to, uh, and you're trying to 
help politicians act within it or around the country. What's the pushback that you're getting as you've uh, worked with uh, with lawmakers to try to put guardrails around uh, around these uh, emergency powers? Yeah, so I think that the the pushback is two things. Uh, first, as I mentioned. Um, that one of the pushbacks is that we really like our governor. We liked what they did, um, whether the governor was, you know, really strong on lockdowns, mask mandates in, in some of the bluer states. Um, and, and some legislators liked that or in the red state, they say, well, this wasn't really a problem for us, so we don't have to worry about it. That's been, um, some of the pushback. And then another piece of pushback is that, the concern that it will become too political, um, that that it's too hard for the legislature to come together and come to consensus and set policy for the state. And my pushback on that is that I actually think that it was the length of the emergency powers and these emergency orders that made it more politicized. And the reason for that is that in if you would have gone back to April of 2020, a month after after these orders started coming down, and you would have required a state legislature to take a vote on whether to extend the governor's emergency orders or not, there would have been more, it would have been more urgent, there would have been more compromise, there would have been more discussion, mm -hmm. instead of legislators being able to sit back for six months, we have more information now, and then play Monday morning quarterback and criticize what happened in the past. And then you had the governors who went back into their corner and had to double down and defend the things that they had done in the past. And then you have you really have headbutting between the two branches of government, between the right and the left. Whereas if if it was required for them to work together from the beginning, I think I think we would have had much more rational response and we wouldn't see the division that we see today on this issue. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point because, you know, when it's just unilateral authority to do anything, uh, the legislature has no skin in the game um, and they have no responsibility. And, and that's probably not how this thing should work. Yeah, actually, uh, what, what Daniel just laid out there of, of, of how that, you know, may have played out in states um, absolutely played out here in Michigan. Uh, you you can see the change in the tone and and the response um, uh, from the governor and from the legislature um, at a certain point in time. And that point in time was when the governor uh, decided to continue the emergency, continue her, her unilateral authority without the legislature's approval. So in Michigan, one of the laws she used required uh, the legislature to extend the, her emergency powers after 28 days. And they did that. Um, Initially, Once. but then that that yeah. ran out on April 30th and 2020. And um, and after that point, um, it became much more politicized. So the governor attacked uh, attacked the Republican legislature for their you know uh, uh, unwillingness to extend her unilateral po power. And and the legislature started attacking the governor's actions more, uh, more directly, more fervently. And um, and that. Uh, it played out exactly as Daniel <laughs> suggested. Uh, it became much more politicized. And then what we get uh, is, I think, a, a, uh, a less ideal emergency response, which is one that's caught up in pol uh, politicization and 
um, where, uh, you know, those sorts of issues are wrapped up in all these other kinds of uh, political causes and cases that um, aren't focused specifically on what we should be doing to minimize harms. Uh, Daniel, is it only in places that have mixed partisan control, as in like a Democratic governor and a Republican legislature or vice versa, that they're dealing with uh, reforming their emergency powers? No. In fact, uh, a lot of the reforms have happened in in single party states. So uh, my home state of of Ohio, uh, Republican controlled legislature, Republican uh, governor, they had to override the governor's uh, veto there um, in order to get their reforms into place. Um, in Utah uh, and Montana, they both passed reforms there. And in those those instances, the governors both signed the legislation. And I think that Governor Cox in, in Utah had some great quotes about respecting the separation of powers and ensuring that each branch is, is doing, is performing its role. So there have been some examples, there have been some uh, bright spots where you've seen uh, legislatures of their own uh, party uh, limiting the, the power of a governor of, of the same party. What specifically are you doing to help these lawmakers reform their laws? I mean, what value are you providing to them? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So I think the first thing is making sure that you have um, you have good policy to, to provide them with. Um, we have a we have a piece of uh, model policy that is designed to just be those guardrails so that it, it works with uh, whatever whatever a state's emergency powers are. These are things that can be implemented to just put those those safe uh, safeguards on it. Um, provide them with principled reasons why these things need to happen. Um, trying to work with with people on the ground in in those states, you know, my my policy team is a pretty small shop, and and we recognize that that people who who are working on the ground with those state legislators have better relationships, better ideas of what's going on. So really trying to utilize uh, the resources that are already there with people who are philosophically and principally aligned. Along those lines, uh, one of the things that uh, I'm working on here in Michigan is uh, just identifying other uh, emergency or other grants of emergency power in Michigan statute. So there's there's these big ones, which are uh, ones where, you know, the governor can declare an emergency and issue orders um, or the uh, public health department can issue orders related to an epidemic. Um but there are lots of other grants of emergency power in statute in Michigan, at least uh, that I know of, and uh, I mean dozens. And there, um, some of them are uh, very poorly written. They're very broad grant, you know, they're broad grants of power. Uh, they do not have any uh, durational limit, uh, and they're uh, not limited in scope. And so, uh, there's uh, what I've been doing is, is identifying those statutes and uh, trying to work with the legislature to uh, identify ways that we can change those statutes so that they provide those kind, the kind of guardrails um, that we need. And, and in those cases, you know, it's even it's even more of a serious issue from a separation of powers perspective, because it's not you know, it's not a governor, an elected official who's making these orders. But in, in many cases, it's unelected bureaucrats who obviously, you know, take their orders from the governor, 
um, typically, but uh, you know they're they're not accountable to the people in any sort of uh, direct way, uh, and that's that's even more problematic from a separation of powers stand standpoint. Have you done enough on this issue so that the next time a crisis like this comes around, that the majority of people are going to have uh, their governors have the appropriate guardrails around their authority? I mean, I don't think that until we get all 50 states with all of these protections that that we've done enough. But uh, the states where the legislature has been proactive and stepped up and and taken um, these reforms seriously, I think that that they're going to be much better off than than they were previously. And, you know, talking about the Overton window, I think that one of the things that this has done is it's opened people's eyes. And, and I think that uh, organizations like Mackinac, PLF have, have done a good job of pointing out that this really is a separation of powers issue. And usually when you have SOP issues, it affects one person or one industry. Um, but we all united as, as in the American people got to live in a world without the separation of powers for a year, year and a half, two years, and we don't like it. And so, and so pointing out that this is really fundamentally what, what the beauty of, of the United States Constitution is and, and in the area of emergency powers or reg reform or whatever it may be, we need to make sure that we have a clear separation of powers and each branch of government is, is performing its proper function. So I think that that's one uh, bright spot out of this whole thing. Yeah, I'd, I'd just add that uh, it's, I, I think it's important to remember that these are um, essentially political decisions. Uh, so these are these are policy decisions made by governors. Um, and and that is borne out by the history of COVID-19, which is, you know, all these subsequent waves, all, all the different waves that we had. Um, the range of action that governors took went from, you know, all the way from the strictest lockdowns that were you know that we'd ever seen in the United States to doing nothing at all. Uh, so that uh, those to me to me that says that the, these are just political decisions. These are policy decisions made by made by politicians, um, and and we need to. Uh, but be, because of that, we need to put guardrails on uh, in statute about what kind of action they can take uh, because uh, we don't know what you know, what sort of political motivation they might have um, to, uh, to uh, you know, uh, violate separation of powers or to uh, abuse these emergency powers. Can, can I just add, add to that uh, quickly? I think that the one thing that Michael pointed out is, is really solid. You know, these reforms are not inherently anti-lockdown, anti-mask, anti-vaccine, any of those things all it's saying is that the policy needs to be set by the body that the Constitution vests the policymaking authority with. So, you know, it's not it's not a this is not an issue of what the policy should be. It's who makes that policy. Daniel, Michael, congratulations for having shifted the Overton window. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Overton Window, a podcast from the Mackinac Center. Please subscribe and rate. For more, check us out at www.mackinaw.org. That's Mackinac with a C, like the island.